This evening, congregation, if you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7, and you can find that in your pew Bible on page 1299, we'll be reading beginning at verse 7 of Romans 7 through the end of the chapter. Then after we read from the inspired Word of God, we'll turn our attention to the 15th article of the Belgic Confession, and in your Forms and Prayers book, you can find that on page 169. We read first from the inspired Word of God, as it's recorded in Romans 7, beginning at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Thus far for this evening, our reading from the Scriptures. We turn then to our Belgic Confession, Article 15, which is entitled, The Doctrine of Original Sin. And it states there, we believe that By the disobedience of Adam, original sin has been spread through the whole human race. It is a corruption of all nature, an inherited depravity which even infects small infants in their mother's womb, and the root which produces in man every sort of sin. It is therefore so vile and enormous in God's sight that it is enough to condemn the human race. And it is not abolished or wholly uprooted even by baptism seeing that sin constantly boils forth as though from a contaminated spring. Nevertheless, it is not imputed to God's children for their condemnation, but is forgiven by His grace and mercy, not to put them to sleep, 
so that the awareness of this corruption might often make believers groan as they long to be set free from the body of this death. Therefore, we reject the error of the Pelagians who say that this sin is nothing else than a matter of imitation. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if I were to ask you, what is humanity's greatest need? What would be our answer? What is it that most plagues the human race? Uh, What is it that most upsets the harmony, not only within humanity, but also by extension, uh, the harmony that there ought to be within the entire created realm? If you listen to various media sources, if you listen to various politicians, if you listen to various self-prescribed experts on culture, even if you listen to various messages coming forth from pulpits all around our land, you'll hear a variety of answers given to that question. Well, what mankind needs is a better education. What mankind needs is more assistance in this area or in that area. Perhaps better housing. Perhaps better dietary guidelines. And then, so the message often goes, And then humanity can progress to the point of developing and fostering and enjoying a utopian experience here in this life. Sadly, while all of those things are good gifts and good providential blessings to experience, food and shelter and clothing, a good education, that does not answer mankind's greatest need. Because mankind's greatest need is not just an improved environment in which to live out the days of his or her life. Humanity's greatest need addresses our greatest problem. And our greatest problem, although this message is not popular from pulpits or airwaves, our greatest problem is our sin, and even at a deeper level, not even our sin, but our sinfulness. The recognition, we might say, The experiential recognition of his own sinfulness is what leads the Apostle Paul to cry out in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am. We firmly believe that this cry from the Apostle Paul is not one that only comes from a pre-converted, a pre-regenerative state, but rather this is the cry of the Christian. This is the cry of the mature Christian. As the mature Christian recognizes that the law and all of its moral purity comes and it shines its light into the innermost recesses of our soul and it finds there what we call theologically original sin. Not just in my mind. Not just in my will. Not just in my emotions or my affections, but even deeper in my very heart of hearts. I find a law. The good that I would, that I don't do. But that which I hate, I find myself doing over and over and over. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And I ask you warmly but also bluntly this evening, have you ever cried that cry in its essence? Acknowledging your wretched condition but not in an exasperation of futility, but in the hope of redemption. 
Because you'll notice uh, that the Scriptures move very quickly as Paul's inspired pen uh, writes, Who will deliver me? Paul knows the answer in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in Romans 8, those well-known words that many of us have committed to memory. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, But we consider this evening... Uh, this portion of the truth of God's Word as it is summarized in our Belgic Confession, Article 15, and as it is revealed, for example, in Romans 7, with this theme, our belief concerning original sin. We want to notice, first of all, the origin of original sin, and then secondly, the severity of original sin, and then thirdly, the remedy for original sin. And I confess from the outset that I do not have any advanced medical training And so there's a danger in using analogies in an area of field in which you have no expertise. But I do believe there is an analogy here, that of a doctor diagnosing an illness, a disease perhaps. If you have a disease or an illness, there are in my mind at least three questions that you hope to answer by way of the doctor's medical intellect. How did I contract this disease? How severe is it? And what, pray tell me, is the remedy? We turn first then underneath the guidance of the great physician, Jesus Christ, as He reveals the diagnosis within the Word of what is wrong with us. And we consider the origin of original sin. Where did our sinfulness come from? You'll notice almost with a passing sleight of hand that our author of the Belgian Confession says that Our sinfulness does not come from mere imitation. Uh, The heresy of the Pelagian movement, as it has been oftentimes repeated throughout the history of the Christian church, says that individual persons are only sinful because they learn sinfulness from their environment, whether it is their parents or a broader relationship. And so the idea is is if you could raise someone in, in isolation from any negative example, then that person who would be inherently good would live a good life. Our author of the Belgian Confession understands Scripture at a more deep level and understands humanity at a deeper level. Our sinfulness does not just come from mere imitation. Sure, we might learn by way of imitation certain ways to express the reality of our sinfulness. And so there are often, you might say, hereditary uh, genealogical traits that go down from one generation to the next generation. And statistics confirm these types of things. It's often the case, uh, not that the judgment of the father's sins are imputed upon the children, but that the children walk, sadly, according to the sins of the fathers. But that's not the origin of their sinfulness When we answer the question, the origin of our sinfulness, we first of all need to recognize the biblical truth of what we termed there in the outline, the reality of Adamic solidarity. Uh, Big words, but simple concepts. And boys and girls, we looked at this uh, a couple of weeks ago. We believe the Bible. And we take it at face value. That the entire human race began with one man whom the Bible and therefore we call Adam, which simply means man. And after the immediate creation of Adam by the sovereign hand of Almighty God, there was then by also 
the work of God, the creation of Eve. And from this original husband and wife nuclear family unit flows all of the members of the human race. Now I well understand that the majority of the world will laugh and they can hardly contain their ridicule when we say such things. They perhaps deem us as almost barbaric in our understanding. But we submit only to the authority of the Word of God. And the Word of God is clear that in the beginning God created, among other things, Adam. And He created Adam, as we noted a few weeks ago, who stood in a particular relationship with the Lord God, His Creator. And that particular relationship we defined as the original covenant. And in that original covenant, there was a probationary command. God said very plainly to Adam and by extension to Eve and by extension to the human race, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You shall die the physical death that would begin its impact upon Adam and Eve's very constitution, but also you will die a spiritual death. And that reality of that spiritual death is what we call, in part, original sin. So that when Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, when they violated the moral commandments of God, uh, their eyes indeed were opened to the painful reality of sinfulness. And they became aware of the fact that they desired that which God did not desire for them. And in the very deepest recesses of their soul, there was a deformity. And the deformity is this, that we also experience. We know that the law of God is good. Even as we hear it read, Sunday morning after Sunday morning, we affirm within our minds, but also within our hearts, yes, those Ten Commandments are good, holy, pure, and right. But we cannot keep them perfectly. And so we trace back the origin of our original sin uh, to this reality that all human beings are descendants of Adam. And in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Not only Adamic solidarity then, but also the Adamic disobedience. I wish we said perhaps this most clearly uh, stated in Romans 5, verse 12, as Adam stood as a federal covenantal representative for the entirety of the human race, in that original covenantal relationship. And so Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. An analogy perhaps for uh, the young people of the congregation. And perhaps I'm odd, but sometimes uh, when I watch a, a football game begin, the two opposing teams will, will send representatives of their teams. Perhaps it's the, the team captains. I'm not exactly sure how they pick who goes out uh, to the middle of the field. And there's the coin toss. Uh, and one team has a representative out there and they call heads or tails. And then the coin is flipped. Uh, the only point of the analogy is, is that the rest of the team who are on the sidelines, they send out one representative. And that one person, when he says, we choose heads or we choose tails, or when they say we choose to receive the ball or we defer to the second half, by doing so, they're exercising this representative principle. And I can remember struggling with this so when I was a, a young child. And I, and I knew the, the biblical account of Adam. 
But but in my in my infant mind, not infant, but my my young mind and my my young heart, I struggled. And I thought, well, I didn't make that decision to to violate the probationary command. But I did. Not personally, of course. But through that representative, Adam. And there's a danger that when we read Genesis 3, and certainly, I believe emphatically in the historicity of that account, but the danger is this, that we become so consumed with fighting for the historicity of that account that we lose something of the wonder that when we read Adam, mankind fell into a state of sin. Including yourself and myself. So humanity has this dreadful spiritual disease which we call original sin. Where did it come from? From our first father, Adam. And from our violation of that original covenantal relationship. Perhaps a different analogy. Many of us, if perhaps not all of us, enjoy United States citizenship. And boys and girls, how did you become a U.S. citizen? Well, the answer is quite simple. I think for nearly every boy and girl in this congregation, you were born to parents that are U.S. citizens. So the only thing you had to do to become a United States citizen was to be born. How did we become sinners? Well, David answers, I believe, that question most clearly in Psalm 51. In sin, my mother conceived me. And that's why our confession states that this depravity infects even small infants. What did you and I have to do to become a sinner? Well, we were conceived and we were born in sin. And so the origin of our original sin has, we hope, been identified. The next question, if the doctor, again going back to the introductory analogy, if the doctor comes in and says, you have a disease or you have a medical condition, almost immediately in the back of your mind or maybe in the forefront of your mind, And those of you who have been diagnosed with a severe disease, you know the immediate question you have is how severe is it? And so we ask ourselves that question concerning original sin. Uh, We might want to use the analogy also of the pandemic of COVID. And this analogy in no way is meant to imply any type of political or any type of medicinal input into the COVID pandemic. I just want to use it as an analogy. Because over the last two years, there has been much talk in media of infection rates, etc. To try to help us understand the severity of original sin, I want to look at the scope of its infection and the result of its infection. Original sin infects 100% of the human populace. 100%. Every single... Man, woman, boy, girl. Every single human person that has ever been conceived from the beginning of human history and that will be conceived until the end of human history is infected 
with the spiritual disease of original sin. Now indeed, the COVID pandemic was and is severe. But it does not have a 100% infection rate. Original sin does. 100%. Every single person you and I see is infected with this spiritual disease including the person that you see when you look in the mirror. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Not only that, but this disease, this spiritual disease, it infects every single part of us. And here again, uh, with much sympathy to those who have gone through uh, a cancer diagnosis and cancer treatments, uh, but when you are diagnosed with cancer, You hope that it is localized. You hope that it hasn't spread. You hope that it's contained. That it's contained in one small area. And that being contained to one small area, the doctors can effectively treat it by removal. The most dreadful thing that you ever want to hear after the doctor says cancer is spread. But here's the dreadful dilemma. When it comes to original sin, 100% of the human populace is infected with it. And it infects 100% of our person. It has spread to our soul and it has spread throughout our soul. So original sin, including the total depravity and the total inability, it infects my mind and it infects my will and it infects my emotions and my affections. It's not just that my hand is sinful, or my foot is sinful, or my left eye is sinful, but I am sinful. Paul doesn't just say, oh, wretched foot that I have that sometimes carries me in the wrong path in life, or wretched ear that I have that sometimes is prone to want to hear that tidbit of gossip. He says, I am a wretched man. And so the disease is indeed severe because it infects 100% of the human race And it infects the entirety of the person. You can think of Jeremiah 17, verse 9. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I believe that people are basically good. Or you'll hear people say, well, he has a good heart. She has a good heart. Well, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the Lord says something drastically different. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The heart is desperately wicked. And so just a note in passing, especially to the young people, but to all of God's people, it's become sort of a cliche saying. I'm sure it's popularized in many a pop and country song. Just follow your heart. Oh, don't you dare follow your heart. The heart is deceitful and wicked. Follow the Word of God. And if your heart says something different than the Word of God says, you and I ought to know that our heart must be brought into submission to the Word of God. And I've had the sad and painful, and I'm sure other pastors and leaders within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ have had sad and painful instances when they sat across from the desk or a table of an individual who had set their mind to walk a path of sin. And they said, well, my heart is telling me to do this. 
Well, that's because the heart is deceitful. And the heart is desperately wicked because of original sin. But notice also the result of this infection. Uh, This infection, it's like a boil that produces, and I apologize in part, but not in total, for uh, perhaps an image that may come to your mind, but this original sin is like a boil that produces an ongoing pus that flows forth, and that ongoing disgusting pus is the actions of sin. So why is it that we lie? Why is it that we gossip? Why is it that we slander? Why is it that we do these things that are contrary to the law of God? That is the expression, uh, the outflowing uh, of these vile actions, these vile thoughts, these vile inclinations that flow out of the disease that we have. Uh, As Jesus Christ Himself says in Matthew 15, verse 19, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. The reason we sin is because we are sinners. Now, we live, and we're not the only age to have lived in this, but we live in an age uh, which there is this victim mentality in which people will explain away the most abhorrent behavior with all kinds of excuses and blame shifting. The reason we sin, ultimately, is because we're sinners. That's what the Apostle Paul indicates uh, in Romans 7. He doesn't say, oh, what wretched circumstances I find myself in. He doesn't say, oh, what wretched upbringing I had. He doesn't say, if only my father had done this, or if only my mother had done that, if only you know, the rabbis who had instructed me had done a better job. Oh, wretched man that I am. Recognizing the infection of original sin. The original sin that brings a sentence of condemnation of condemnation of eternal death. And that's why, for example, Ephesians 2 uh, speaks about the human race apart from the redeeming, regenerating work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul there in Ephesians 2 says, and you who were dead in sins and in trespasses. And it's always struck me, and it's certainly a scriptural truth, but it is a most stark scriptural truth when we bring uh, an infant to be baptized. And you look at the infant, and I've, I've baptized a number of them. I don't ever recollect any one of them ever wearing anything but white. And there they are in their, their pristine beauty, a small child. And we begin our form and we say, the first thing we must know is that we are conceived and born in sin and subject to all manner of miseries, yes, even to condemnation itself, so that unless we are born again, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. A biblical truth, but is that not a stark statement? But it's true. Subject even to condemnation itself. And so there is something of the description of the severity of original sin. And as we transition, I just simply ask you as I ask myself, do we agree with Romans 7 verse 18? For I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, There is nothing good. You know, the doctor can give his report. The doctor can say, well, it's this disease. And you can say, I don't believe it. And you can go get 
a second or a third opinion. But just denying what the doctor has told you doesn't change the fact that you have the disease. And so we need to be brought, not just initially, but continually, we need to be brought by the Word and by the Spirit to acknowledge the reality of Romans 7, verse 18. Well, what then are we to do? Uh, That brings us into our third point, the remedy for original sin. Uh, After we have had that consultation with the doctor and he has explained our situation, our condition, and he has described its severity, I believe the second question that comes to the forefront of our mind after we ask how severe is it, we then ask, well, is there anything that can be done? And thanks be to God, there is something not only that can be done, but thanks be to God that there is something that has been done. And so, of course, it's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's a wonderful way in which Paul, uh, so to speak, weaves Romans 7, verse 23 and 24 right into Romans 7, verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because it is those persons who by the Word and by the Spirit, it is those persons who recognize the origin of our sinfulness and the severity of our sinfulness who then come to say, I thank God that there is a remedy. And that remedy must be stated, first of all, negatively, so that we know not what to do. The remedy is not mere moral reform. What do I mean by this? If the pulpit, if the Word of God, as it does again tonight, makes known to you, whenever you hear these words, wherever you hear these words, it comes to you and says there's something about the human race and about each and every single human person that is wretched, and that is their original sin, their total depravity, and the sentence of eternal condemnation. What then must we do? Do not simply attempt to try to make some external moral reforms. That'd be as silly as someone receiving a cancer diagnosis and saying, well, I'll just go home and change my clothes and everything will be well. We would say, what in the world are you trying to accomplish with a mere change of clothes? You, you have an internal disease. The changing of your external apparel is not going to do anything to impact that internal disease. And so when we know ourselves to be inherently sinful, it's not just a matter of, well, you know, if I could just take the Lord's name in vain a little bit less throughout the week. Or if I could just stop a little bit of the gossip that I engage in? Or if I could just be a little bit kinder to him or to her? That's never going to deal with the inherent sinfulness of our soul. But also to state negatively, we cannot appeal to just a mere external sacramentalism. The mere external waters of baptism. Now, yes, baptism is a wonderful, beautiful sign and seal that we ought to cherish when we rightly understand it. But the mere sprinkling of water has never saved a single soul. Now, the blood of Jesus Christ, which that water represents, has saved an innumerable company of souls. But the mere sprinkling of water and the mere, by extension, the mere external receiving of bread and of wine, the mere external actions cannot save a soul. Well, what then is the remedy? Very simply, the remedy is Jesus Christ. 
His person alone and His work alone. And you notice that our Belgian confession picks up on this. And it says, nevertheless, a most beautiful word in a confessional statement and in Scripture, you might say, it expresses this truth, but God. Man is this, but God. Nevertheless, it, referring to our original sin, is not imputed to God's children. Not imputed. So I have original sin, as you do. But it's not imputed to my legal record. It's not counted against me. And on the day of judgment, it will not be held against me. Well, why not? Because a wonderful act of double imputation has taken place. The guilt of my original sin is transferred on to the redemptive shoulders of the Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when He hung upon the cross in between heaven and hell, and when He cried out in the darkness, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Part of the answer for that why is because the original sin of the elect had been imputed upon Him. So where is my original sin? Yes, it's in my heart, but legally, judicially, it's on Christ. And it's been dealt with definitively by Him. And not only that, but His perfect righteousness, because He is the one exception in the flow of human history. He is the one who was conceived without any original sin. He is the one who was born without any original sin. He is the one who then lived a life of absolute moral perfection, completely absent from any sin. But in a judicial manner, all of our original sin has been placed upon Him. And His perfection, His holiness is credited to our account. So that when God looks upon you and looks upon me, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is indeed now no condemnation. Because God in the act of justification declares that the believer is perfectly righteous. Because all of our sinfulness is granted to Christ. And all of His righteousness is granted unto us. And His blood alone. And here we come back to these perhaps somewhat antiquated, but certainly most beautiful and most rich and 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 I, I pray and I will do by God's grace everything that I can do to preserve the knowledge of these terms for us and for our children of the substitutionary atonement that Christ in our place suffered the wrath of God so that we do not have to suffer that wrath of God and you can think of the Passover as the children of Israel, as the fathers of the household took the sacrificial blood that had been shed and put it upon the doorpost. And when the angel of death moved into uh, the land of Egypt, and when he saw the blood upon the doorpost, the substitutionary atoning blood, he passed over that house. And all of its members were saved. Because of the blood. 
And so yes, tonight we have identified that there is a most severe infectious disease that impacts 100% of the human race. But there is also a great distinction in that many a member of that human race has a remedy. Faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight, in conclusion, uh, there is this simple statement. If you hear these words, that means you are a living member of the human race. And by nature, you are infected with a most deadly disease. But let everyone know there is a remedy. And the remedy is also 100% effective. Taken, there never has to be any doubt about a recovery. And again, this is not into weighed into any type of medical or political agendas. Uh, but with infectious diseases, we might take the remedy and then we wait. And we certainly pray and we, we hope. Well, we, we hope that the medicines work. We hope that the treatment works. Many times it does, for which we are thankful. Sometimes it doesn't. But the remedy for our infectious disease of original sin is 100% effective. No one has ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and then been lost. No one has ever trusted in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and still fallen underneath the sentence of eternal condemnation. And so my appeal to all of us, maybe for the first time, or for many of us by way of renewal, fly to the fountain. In the spiritual exercise of faith and repentance, fly to that fountain that was opened once and for all for sin and uncleanness, uh, that is drawn from Emmanuel's veins. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient. It has atoned also for our original sin, so that at the same time, we can say, oh, wretched man that I am. And we can say, I thank God through Jesus Christ that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we have touched upon weighty matters in the evening hour of this Sabbath day. Uh, we have talked of original sin and of its severity. We have talked of eternal condemnation. But we have also talked about Jesus Christ. And we ask that we would be reminded of the truthfulness of all of these statements. That yes, we are wretched men and women by nature, given our original sin, but also that we thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. So may we find peace even as we can discuss these realities of sinfulness. But may that peace only be in the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, Amen.